Uh, well, happy Mother's Day to all our mothers here today and those who are watching online as well. In late 2000, Indra Nuyi was working late at Pepsi-Cola. And around 9.30 p.m., her phone rang in the office. And on the other line was a member of the corporate board letting her know that she would be the next president of PepsiCo. Nanuyi was one of the first women to break this level of the corporate glass ceiling, as we call it sometimes. And Nanuyi recounts what happened when she arrived home that night to share the big news to her family. She said, I went home to tell my family that I was going to be president of PepsiCo and mum, she calls her mum, not mom, but mum, okay? She said, mum opens the door. She was living with me at that time, and I said, mum, I've got great news for you. And she said, before the news, go get some milk. <laughs> I said, it's 10 o'clock at the night, why should I go get milk? And you know, you never question your mum. So she said, I went to the store at 10 o'clock and brought home some milk. And I got the milk, I came back, and I sort of banged the milk on the countertop. And I said, I had big news for you. I have just been appointed president of Pepsi-Cola, and all that you care about is a carton of milk. She just looked at me and said, what are you talking about? When you walk in the door, you just leave that crown in the garage. <laughs> because you are the wife, you are the daughter, the daughter-in-law, and the mother of these kids... And that's all I want to talk about. Anything else, just leave it in the garage. Don't even try this with me anymore. That's kind of funny, isn't it? And it's an interesting story from one mother to another mother who happens to be her daughter. And her big news was an amazing accomplishment. And we think about that president of PepsiCo. That's a huge deal. Um, and it's a, an accomplishment by the standard of the corporate world, certainly, but when you get home, the role that matters most and needs to matter most, especially according to mom here, is being what you were called to be at home, and especially as a mom. So mothers and grandmothers working together to raise kids, that's nothing new, is it? Uh, that's been happening throughout history. Mothers have this huge responsibility, and the help they get from their own mothers or their mother-in-law is certainly appreciated and helpful, but not without conflict at times, right? It just reminds us of the many hats or crowns, in this case, that a mother and a grandmother must wear in order to raise and invest in their kids. Well, we know that God created the family. God created mothers. He created grandmothers, and they have incredibly important roles and opportunities in the lives of their children and their grandchildren. And the most important influence can be in the development, certainly, of their faith in God. <clears throat> and mothers are a huge factor when it comes to instilling that faith in their children. They are a significant factor in converting their child from the thoughts and values that they hear all over the world to a Christian and a biblical worldview because your kids are going to hear all these other things and a mom has to try to help a kid sort through all of that and come up with a value system. So we've been going through this new sermon series called Conversion Factor and we've been looking at the different things in life that influence first century people to follow Jesus Christ. And in week one, y'all remember Jonathan shared with us from Acts the conversion of the Ethiopian official through the Apostle Philip and the Holy Spirit. And last week we looked at 
um, that second chapter of Acts on the day of Pentecost when there were over 3,000 conversions through the Holy Spirit that day in Peter's message. So today I want to stay on that conversion factor topic, but we're going to look outside of Luke's book, Acts, and we're going to go to the Apostle Paul and his second letter to a young man named Timothy who was a pastor in some churches there in the first century. And I want us to look at a mother and a grandmother today that are specifically mentioned in that text that Paul says he knows about their sincere faith. And obviously that sincere faith that they had was passed on to Timothy and was a significant factor in converting. He would be a significant factor in converting folks to become Jesus followers in that first century. So we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to read through that. Paul's introducing this letter to Timothy. And it's, uh, the greeting is very similar to almost all of Paul's letter, letters that we read in the New Testament. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as day and night I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now also lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God, for the Spirit God gave us, does not make us timid but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul makes clear in this letter that the faith and influence of Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, certainly had a strong foundation and legacy for his life and ministry. He specifically mentions it. And I want us to look at some values and principles here that Paul specifically mentions that I think are very important today for mothers to instill in their kids. So in verse 6, Paul uses the phrase, fan into flame the gift of God. Have you ever fanned anything into flame? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Some of y'all are nodding your heads. You remember that. Now, I remember my mom, who's here today. I remember her giving me this job when I was growing up. Um, my dad wasn't a big barbecue guy, but my mom was. She was good at grilling things out. So she would say, you need to go get the fire ready. So I would stack the charcoal, you know, and you put the lighter fluid and light it. And then you let it burn down a little bit. But as it started to go out, my job was to fan it. Okay? And we didn't have the anvil thing. I had fans. So I just remember over the years using a paper sack, you know, the, like grocery bags. I remember folding one of those up and fanning. I remember using an egg carton sometimes. You take an egg carton and fan, or just a piece of cardboard. Has anybody ever done this? Some of you are. Thank you. You're nodding your head. It's always great when everybody's like, you know, at least a few people nod your head. They're like, what is he talking about? An idiot. No one did that, you know. <laughs> but I remember doing that, and I remember it would fan that flame, and it would get those embers nice 
and ready, and then I would spread them out, and mom would be in, in the kitchen preparing the meat or whatever, and she would bring it out, and the fire would be ready. So when I thought about this passage, I thought about you, mom, and teaching me to fan that flame. And that's what Paul's talking about. Fanning the flame is a little bit different here. Paul has recognized that God has gifted all of us, all of your children, mothers and grandmothers, grandchildren, have gifts have talents, have gifts that God has given them. And moms and grandmothers have an opportunity to see those gifts and talents in their kids that they've been gifted with and encourage those gifts and fan that flame, make them a reality not only in their own lives, but also so that those gifts and talents can be a reality to other people in their lives, right? So we fan that flame. And then Paul says that the Spirit of God does not make us timid. God doesn't make us timid. That, that power that he gives us, he says, and timid is being shy or fearful or hesitant, but it gives us three things, power, love, and self-discipline. Now, I remember growing up in the church, and I remember being a shy kid, but now I think about what my mom instilled in me, what this church instilled in me, that I was not to be timid, that God had called me to something greater. And I think about that as a young man, not only my mother, but other mothers and grandmothers and men in the church develop that in me, that you're not supposed to be timid. God has called you to something else. So I believe these three things, power, love, and self-discipline, are characteristics that moms and grandmoms certainly should instill in their kids. And keep in mind here, these are characteristics that Paul says the Holy Spirit gives. These are to be looked at from that perspective and not a worldly perspective. So when we talk about power and love and self-discipline, it's from a biblical worldview and from the Holy Spirit. So I want to talk first about the word power. And in the Greek, the word is dunamis. Now, if you actually look at some of the forms of the Greek word, um, it, there's one of them that actually looks like the English word dynamite. And you think about how that word, and you think about that for a minute, a small stick of dynamite, when you light it with fire, it produces powerful results, doesn't it? And that's what this is kind of insinuating here. When the gift of the Holy Spirit in someone is fanned into flame, powerful results can come. And uh, real power is strength under control. Think about that. Real power is strength under control for a specific purpose. Now, you can see powerful things, but when it's under control for a specific purpose, it's really the way power should be, and that's what I think Paul is talking about here. Moral strength, that would be strength, a power under control. Strength in one's character, in one's integrity, that produces powerful results for a purpose, and that's to glorify God, whether it's in our own lives or in the lives of someone else. And this power is not to be for personal gain, and that's where we see the world's definition of power, and we see that in, in politics and all kinds of things that are going on. People use their power for personal gain or fame, but it shouldn't be for that. Paul is saying power should be used to encourage and inspire others and point them to God, their Creator, and their Savior. And kids need to know from their mothers that they've been empowered by their Creator with the Holy Spirit to be who they were created to be, and those gifts and talents that they have can be fanned in, uh, fan, fan that flame so that those things will be used for God's glory. So we think about power. And then the other thing Paul says is love. 
we have this power, and then we also have love. And the Greek word here is agape. Now, we know, and I've shared lots of times, and a lot of y'all know this, in the Greek, there wasn't just one word for love. There were probably five or six different words for the different types of love we see in the New Testament. And the heart of agape love is goodwill, compassion, willful joy in the object of love. Unlike our English word love, agape is not used in the New Testament to refer to romantic or sexual love. It doesn't refer to friendship or brotherly love. No, there are other specific words for that that we read about in in the Greek text. But agape involves faithfulness. It involves commitment and an act of the will. It is distinguished from those other types of love um, by an admirable nature and a strong moral character. Agape love is described in 1 Corinthians 13. And some of y'all have this in your house. Some of you had this read at your wedding. I did a wedding last week and I read this passage. And this is what Paul says agape love is. When we see love in the Greek text, it's actually agape there. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. That's a beautiful way of looking at what love is supposed to be, that agape love. And mothers need to help their children understand and distinguish agape love from the other forms of love that are portrayed to them in all kinds of different ways, right? In movies, in music, and in all the things they see on their phone constantly, love is portrayed in a lot of different ways. And much of what culture depicts as love is a deception, and it can be misrepresented and leave us spiritually and emotionally empty and confused. So we go to God's word to understand what agape love really is. And then Paul talks about self-discipline. And the Greek word here is sophronimos. Isn't that a cool word? You know, get some self-discipline, get some sophronimos, you know? But that's what that word is in the Greek, which is a soundness of your mind, a soundness of your mind, consistent self-control. Consistent self-control, being responsible for oneself and one's actions. Not blaming it on everybody else, but taking um, a responsibility for your actions, what you say, what you do. And this is a character trait that is so critical for the development of children into responsible and productive adults. If a child or young person never learns to have self-discipline, there will be major issues in their lives. And some of y'all are nodding your heads because you know that's true. Mothers need to develop this in kids. As long as a child or a young person understands or knows that mom or dad will always take responsibility for their actions, will always take responsibility for their behavior, and do everything for them and not have to ever face the consequences, guess what? They never will. They never will face those consequences. So why do it myself? They're always going to come in and swoop down and be that helicopter parent and take care of everything for me. That's not teaching kids or grandkids self-discipline. When we as children or young people must, uh, we need to sit in our mistakes sometimes, don't we? Did your parents ever make you sit in your mistakes? Yeah, I really hated them at the time when they made me sit in my mistake, but guess what? I learned valuable lessons, didn't y'all? When I had to sit in the consequences of my mistakes and nobody swooped in and tried to fix it for me. Making excuses for our kids, not holding them accountable for their actions, it develops selfish and entitled narcissists 
who ultimately will have relational troubles, not only in their families, but in the workplace as well, because they think the world revolves around them. Again, mothers, this is critical to teach our kids. It's not easy, but you do have the help of the Holy Spirit that Paul's talking about here to produce this fruit of the Spirit. Paul says when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, that self-control, self-discipline is one of those. And our tendency is to protect our kids from hurts and mistakes and bad choices. But they must learn through their own personal experiences in many cases. Consequences can be a great teacher, can't they? But in many cases, the price can be very expensive, as many of us know. But things are worth the price sometimes, and even more for wisdom. Winston Churchill was 15 years old and a student at Harrow School when his mother, Jeannie Churchill, wrote him this letter on June the 12th, 1890. Now, I'm assuming he was in a boarding school, but listen to what she wrote him about. I have much to say to you, I'm afraid, not of a pleasant nature. You know, darling, how I hate to find fault with you, but I can't help myself this time. Your report, which I enclose, is, as you will see, a very bad one. You work in such a fitful, inharmonious way that you are bound to come out last. Look at your place in the form. Your father and I are both more disappointed than we can say that you are not able to go up for your preliminary exam. I dare say you have a thousand excuses for not doing so, but there the fact remains. Dearest Winston, you make me very unhappy. My only consolation is that your conduct is good and you are an affectionate son, but your work is an insult to your intelligence. If you would only trace out a plan of action for yourself and carry it out and be determined to do so, I'm sure you could accomplish anything you wished. It is that thoughtlessness of yours which is your greatest enemy. I will say no more now, but Winston, you are old enough to see how serious this is to you and how the next year or two and the use you make of them will affect your whole life. Stop and think it out for yourself and take a good pull before it's too late. You know, dearest boy, I will always help you all I can. Your loving but distressed mom. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, I'm sure psychologists today and counselors today go, Oh, she's damaged this kid. She damaged his psyche. I can't believe she said those awful things. We're disappointed. All those kind of things. But I have to believe that that was a factor in Winston Churchill turning his life around. Wouldn't you all? I mean, obviously, he became a great leader at a great uh, historical time where we needed great leadership, right? And think about maybe if his mother had decided not to send that letter, what would have happened to Winston Churchill? It was not an easy letter to write, but we can see that it probably certainly made an impact. And sometimes moms, grandmoms, have to say the hard things. Sometimes they have to challenge their children to become who God created them to be, and that can be difficult. Well, the last thing I want to emphasize from our text today is verse 9, where Paul said to Timothy, He, Jesus, has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. Now, we read that a lot when we right before we take communion, and think about that again. He's called us and saved us to a holy life, not to a selfish life, Mothers, your kids need to know this truth. Jesus has saved them and calls them to a holy life. Now, no teenager, no kid wants to hear 
you've been saved for a holy life. Holy? I don't want to be holy. I mean, do you think any of your kids want to necessarily be holy? Do they even understand? They think that means self-righteous maybe, something kind of, I don't want to be like that. But a holy life means you're set apart. But God did not call our kids or us to a necessarily popular life that goes viral with thousands of likes. And that's what the world is teaching our kids is what their life should be about. How many likes do you get? How popular can you be? Not necessarily to have a trouble-free life where everything goes their way, but God has called them to a holy life, a life that's set apart from the messages, from the agendas, from the philosophies of this world, a life that has a purpose and grace through Jesus Christ who has saved them and given them this purpose. And kids need to know that, embrace that, and they also need to see that in moms and grandmoms and parents. Now, please hear me say not saying you have to be perfect, but it does mean being present in your kid's life and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to lead you as a mother. I could never be a mother. I will never be a mother. So you're kind of like, what are you talking about? What do you know? You're exactly right. I don't. But God's word is clear on these things when you think about those words, about the agape love, how important it is, about the self-discipline how important it is, all those things, the power and understanding how God wants us to use those. And sometimes mothers need to be encouraged and challenged as mothers. There are factors that can lead to some conversions in the way that you, as a mom or a grandmom, parent or grandparent. And so listen to this mother, Julie Canless, explain. She was uh, uh, working on her Ph.D. in graduate studies at Regent College, and she says, I had a desperate talk with Eugene Peterson. A lot of you will recognize that name. He's the one who put together that message, um, Bible or paraphrase. And he was, I was talking to him about how my Ph.D. had turned the words of God into a great big research project. And I was trying to read my lifeless Bible, but I was interrupted a thousand times by children needing to be fed, needing to be changed, needing to be read to, and more. I begged him to give me a spiritual discipline, some rope to haul me out of the hole I was in. And he said this, Well, Julie, is there anything you're doing in a disciplined manner already in your life right now? I thought about my newborn daughter, Iona, and the hours that I spent nailed to our couch feeding her. She had reflux, and most of what went into her immediately came up again, which meant that I had to repeat the feed all over again. Well, nursing Iona is the only thing I can count on, I said. She makes sure of that. He patted my hand, then like a parent consoling a dissatisfied child who is not content with their lot in life, he said this, Julie, that is your spiritual discipline. Now start paying attention to what you are already doing. Be present. And in that moment, and so many others like it, I was weakened by a very common and insidious temptation. I wanted to be for Christ instead of being in Christ. I saw my family responsibilities as obstacles to a godly life when in fact they were the very place he wanted to meet me. Accordingly, I had to radically revise my view of obedience to include the simple act of abiding in Christ. Interesting observation, isn't it? I want to share this, and then we're going to show just a, a, another video to kind of honor moms this morning. But I read this a few years ago, and I like to read it on Mother's Day. It was written by a lady named Amy Young from her blog, which is called Messy Middle. Interesting, isn't it? And she says this, 
for Mother's Day. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badges of food stains, we appreciate you. Though, to those who have experienced the loss this year through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to take, make this harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who experience abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. It is not and was not your fault. To those mothers who have experienced abuse at the hands of your own children, we grieve your experience and say to you also, it is not and was not your fault. To those who live through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who will have empty your nest in the upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real, real warriors in our midst. We remember you. We honor you. We ask God's blessing on you, and we pray you will walk humbly with your God.